When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Petro edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. Joined as ever by Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello, people. Hello. Hey, everybody. And okay, this is the super special Petro edition, not just because we're going to be talking about Petros, but because Dave Rolly is here. Hello. Dave Rolly is my favorite person in the world. Dave Rolly, um, introduce yourself. Well, um, I'm co head of global fixed income at Loomis Sales. That sounds really boring, but you're not actually a boring person. Uh, we do bonds. We buy bonds. We sell bonds. <laughs> still we still sounds think about bonds. Well, um, uh, it can be, but uh, uh, on the other hand, a lot more people do equity, so we thought that it was a sparser place to set up shop. You Okay, so you cover the entire world. You invest. When you say global fixed income, you really mean global fixed income. We probably, we probably have, I think it's, um, I forget, it's either 15 or 16 economists looking at at least 80 countries. And at any given point in time, uh, about half of them look um, investable and go into portfolios. So, yeah, we look at yeah. everything. So, okay. So, we are going to do a little tour of the world here since, since Dave is here. And we're going to talk about Europe and Brexit. We are going to talk about Latin America and how that is falling apart, and, and especially the Venezuelan bit. And um, we're going to have to mention the Petro, which is the um, rumored cryptocurrency, because who doesn't want a state-backed ICO? I think this is just hilarious. And I think the most sort of weirdly incomprehensible fiscally bizarre emerging market country in the world right now is the USA. So let's let's start there. Emerging into what? Emer yeah, what is it emerging into? This is the thing which I'm really puzzled about. Like, a lot of this talk about this tax plan that is almost certainly going to happen at this point seems to be based on, you know, the winners and the losers and comparing, like, the next year's taxes to this year's taxes and that kind of stuff. But if you take a step back, sort of directionally, where is America going? You're looking at 80 different countries. What country is it becoming? Oh, uh, are you asking, is the tax plan a good idea? No, I think we can um, all agree that it's not a good idea. Because what's interesting is we didn't actually need it right now, if you look at the U.S. economy uh, from an economic perspective, we don't need a stimulus. No, we don't. Right. Uh, let's see. We've had we've had a long expansion. Part of the reason why it's so long is because it's been so slow. But nonetheless, one step at a time, two percent per year. We're at something like full employment. And in fact, if you look at the GDP growth for the last two quarters, it's been three percent or better. And we're tracking at about three and a half for the fourth quarter. It's been a long time since we had three consecutive quarters of three percent growth. So the economy is actually doing. Okay, why do we now need a massive fiscal stimulus at full employment? Well, we probably don't. Right. But there are social contracts, and social contracts are important. And I think the most important social contract here is probably between the Republican Party in Congress and its donor base. And there was a sentence that I think was in the journal that crystallized it for me. I think the donor said, if you don't pass this, don't ever call me again. And so there's a feeling like the Republican Party exists to cut taxes. They can do it. If they don't do it, what are they for? Okay, It's so almost existential. As, as, a, as a person who spends your life looking at many countries around the world, nothing will surprise you anymore, having been in this line for, a long, for many, many years. 
what does this remind you of? Like, where have you where have you seen something like this happen anywhere else? Oh well, it's just another example of a kind of 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 wishful thinking, I guess. The best possible interpretation of the tax bill is that the cut in the corporate income tax may lead to more capital spending by companies. And that's possible. Uh, CEO surveys do indicate that they plan to spend a little bit more on equipment next year than they did. Of course, it might also be because we're at full capacity and and they might have to. On the other hand, uh, uh, tax cuts never pay for themselves. Uh, that was um, something called supply-side economics. It never worked. Uh, the math is pretty simple. On the other hand, you've seen all kinds of other places where people have spent money and just hoped that something good would happen later. And those tend to be either um, uh, places with populism or with coalition governments. But in general, the essence of all of these places is uh, a ruling political executive that is not in a position to allocate austerity. And so they tend to wish for the best. They just no, don't feel that they have the um, um, uh, the authority, if you like, or the or or, or the voting base, or what have you, to uh, make difficult decisions. So, I think in a lot of ways, though, that's that might be, or at least as far as I think a lot of voters are concerned, that might be the best of all possible outcomes here. That this only ends up adding to deficits. That you don't see massive social spending cuts of the sort that Paul Ryan is now threatening, but. I guess I, I have a question related to that. Though. Oh, well, notice how long have we had? We haven't even gotten a reconciliation bill yet, right? Yeah. But they're so confident that they will. They're or, already starting to talk about spending cuts because we can't afford it. That's Let true. Let me get this right. So we do a – we cut government revenues even though we don't need the stimulus. And then we discover that we have these bigger deficits. So we must we must shrink spending. That's called starve the beast. Uh, and this goes all the way back to, I believe, the Nixon administration and has been part of a kind of core Republican playbook for the in, almost almost my entire uh, professional I said, career. I, I have a bond related question specifically, though, since sure. you're since you're a bond guy. Yep. Um, let's say we do end up with higher deficits because of this. We end up with lo- higher long term debt load. A few years back, especially around 2011, the Tea Party, you heard a lot of talk about how the U.S. was going to have to reckon with the bond vigilantes if our deficits got too out of control, that the markets were going to somehow, you know, turn on us the way they were turning on some countries in Europe. Is there any conceivable, I guess, is is there any, since we are a country that prints our own currency, for instance, is there any conceivable way that happens? Is that something, or as a guy who's actually, I mean, this is your job to invest in the fixed income around the world, is that... That means I am a bond vigilante. Yeah. yeah. You have an actual <laughs> bond, bond vigilante yeah, I mean, in, in, your, in your studio. So would you ever come after us? <laughs> well, I have to say on the part of all of the bond vigilantes uh, that we have collectively been um, essentially stunned into a coma by central bank quantitative ease. Now, if you think about this, this, this global expansion that we've had for the past few years, it's been really kind of slow and it's had really low inflation. And at the same time, central banks have bought collectively about eight trillion dollars in government bond and other securities. So what we know is in a world of relatively um, mediocre growth and weak inflation, if central banks show up and buy a whole lot of bonds, those interest rates will go down. And anybody who shorted that market um, lost their job or their (laughs) clients or what have you. I mean, we bought 30-year Japanese government bonds at 1.4% and made a lot of money doing it because it fell in yield to 80 basis points. That's a nuts trade, but it worked. Uh, we sold them, but I mean, but I mean, <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, you know. So, so that's that's just the reality. The reality has been that quantitative ease has changed the value proposition, not just for bonds, but for every asset in the world. Okay. Yeah, and it's so, important yeah. because it's not just that it has in the past, but it also suggests that in the future, if the economy starts to get into trouble again, you're going to have governments step in and do a similar action. So that's again why there just is not the same concern about deficits especially or deficits or debt especially in a country like the US. Okay, so let me let me try and put this together here because it's important. Let's assume this works. 
Let's assume that we don't get into trouble in the future. So we're not going to have another round of quantitative easing. We're already unwinding the quantitative easing that we did in the past. Given that there's no QE going on anymore in the United States, does that mean there is actually a risk of the bond finchelantes coming back in the United States? They need one thing to wake them out of their, uh, their, their coma, and that is an inflation surprise. Right now, if you look at what the, how the market is pricing inflation, I would use something like a U.S. 10-year treasury break-even because it's really liquid. And it says that for the next 10 years, the market expects inflation to be about 1.9%. So less than 2% inflation for 10 years. I think that leaves a lot of room for an upside surprise. And it doesn't really matter that um, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee is not going to issue as many long bonds as we thought, and they're going to be issuing more bills than we thought, so there'll be less duration supply. What will matter is that there's a whole lot of folks owning a whole lot of long-term government bonds, and the yields are really low right now. So if they get stunned by an inflation surprise, they will sell them. And they might sell quite a lot of them, and that will give us um, a yield spike. So because, that's the risk. Because the, because the central bank is not going to be buying They're not going to be buying them. They're not going to be buying them. If inflation's moving up, they're not going to be interested in QE. They're going to be maybe interested in fighting inflation. And if the bond market curve steepens and does some of the inflation fighting for them, that just means they have to raise short-term interest rates a little bit less. They would see in, – in the case of an inflation spike, they would see a yield spike as actually – part of their toolkit. So actually, what you're saying is that we might have the bond vigilantes turn up and the the yield curve might go back to something more approaching vaguely normal territory. But that wouldn't matter very much because the government will be funding itself at the short end of the curve. So it doesn't increase government interest rates that much. And in fact, it just means that the central bank doesn't need to hike as much. So maybe the bond fans, like maybe there's nothing to worry about here. Well, I think it's going to be a big deal for people that have bonds in their portfolios. But I think oh, it's always, going to, be, it's always yeah. going to be a big deal for people that have stocks in their portfolios. Uh, that's one of the risks to the equity market, which has been everybody's best friend for the past several years. And there's two things that can upset um, equity investors. One would be there would be an earnings disappointment, you know, that the growth story, which has gotten better, uh, stops getting better and earnings disappoint. You know, that's that's the E of a P.E. ratio. But the ratio itself is correlated with interest rates. You know, the, you know, the equity multiple, um, E over P, if you like, um, uh, the earnings yield has is priced off, off off treasury yields. So if yields are higher, everybody says, well, you know, my future cash flow um, from this company is worth less. Uh, maybe I'm overpaying for it. So so you can break the stock market either with an earnings disappointment or a yield surprise. Either one of them could be very damaging to equities. And for real estate, for that matter. Well, every single thing out there except <laughs> Bitcoin um, has a Which we're um, coming to. has a has a has a cash flow and you then have to figure out what's the present value of that cash flow. When people talk about intrinsic value, that sounds kind of magic, right? Um, and like, where did they go to school? Are they smart? You know, none of that. It's intrinsic value is just the present value of future cash flows. That's all it is. I want to give away a trade secret there, but that's, that's, that's Dave all Dave Raleigh is outing himself as what yeah. my friend Iroff used to call a DCF jockey. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> so I guess, you know, my question about the bond vigilantes, the, the fear that some people seem to have about them back in the day was that it wasn't that they were going to wreck the financial markets or they were going to be bad for equity values. It was that somehow the U.S. was going to find itself in a situation where there were spir like spiraling government interest rates, essentially, and our debt load was going to go up. And all of a sudden, it would become harder for us to roll over our debt or something like that. And I guess I'm just wondering, is there any scenario you can imagine where the, um, the U.S.'s fiscal situation would get so bad that you would see that kind of market panic, that all of a sudden we were not considered, uh, you know, assuming we weren't going to breach the debt ceiling, that we were, that, that we were you know, not considered um, a, a safe investment, a, a safe place to person or a safe country to lend to. There's a bunch of different pieces uh, that we have to look at to actually answer your question properly. And I'm going to pick on two of them. First, the economic numbers don't represent a very big threat to U.S. solvency. Um, we're still uh, one of the richest countries in the world per capita. We're huge. 
Uh, we've got a pretty good piece of a continent. Um, there's even um, uh, more natural resources than we thought there were now that we've figured out how to get oil out of shale. Uh, there, so the economics are basically fine. Um, the debt's large, but the yield is really low. Second point, we're still the world's reserve currency which is phenomenal. It gives you unbelievable power of seniorage. Um, so you can buy anything in the world with money you print. This is really neat. Uh, the Chinese would love it, but um, there's problems. If you're going to do that, you have to have property rights. We have property rights. Uh, there's not a lot of billionaires trying to get money into China to buy property. There seem to be more of them trying to get money out of China to buy property here. So property rights are like a big deal if you want to be a reserve currency country. Keep that in mind. So the only real alternative to the dollar is either the euro, which has issues, which we may talk about, or Bitcoin or maybe the petro. Um, <laughs> anyway, so right now, reserve currency country, economics are fine. How do we mess this up? The way you would mess it up and really frighten the market was rehearsed a couple of years ago uh, when we um, had a standoff in um, uh, changing in raising the debt ceiling. It would have to do with we, we would go along for a couple of years and there are going to be some bad deficits out there, mostly because um, my own baby boomer generation is getting older. And as we get older, uh, we consume more health care. Healthcare is very expensive. So the bill for that is going to only go up unless there are, are transformational changes in that industry. And we could talk about that in a minute or two, too. But anyway, so you look at that bigger deficit and you can, you can do one of two things. You can either cut spending. Uh, my personal theory is that they will ration care to the baby boomers. And so when I need quadruple bypass, they will come back to me and say, I'm sorry, we're only going to pay two for two instead of the the, the, the four. So pick Sounds like your, a death panel to me. Pick your ventricles wisely. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so I do think that there's a, there's a risk of rationed care, and those would be spending cuts. And the other possibility is you could raise taxes. Internationally, the U.S. economy is not a highly taxed economy. Its taxes are quite low. Um, what's missing when you look at our tax structure is we have very little um, uh, indirect taxation. Everybody else in the world has something like a value-added tax. We've got these little sales taxes, but they're not very big. If you looked at the ecology and climate change and stuff, you might think a really big carbon tax would be an excellent way to raise money. But this whole thing really means that there will be a crunch point where one side of the political equation will want to cut spending and the other side will want to raise taxes if they can come to an agreement, we're AAA. If they can come to no agreement at all, then we might have a problem in the bond market. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Okay, so this week in our little Slate Plus segment, we are going to answer Dave Rolly's question about with a healthcare because Jordan wanted to talk about the merger between CVS and Aetna. And let's move on to Europe and my home country of Great Britain. Dave, what the hell is going on and what can we expect? The most surprising thing about this for me in the markets is that sterling is continuing to trade rather well. Uh, you know, we were flirting with a dollar thirty-five. Uh, and we think that's probably on the expensive side. Back before Brexit, you know, we kind of thought, well, you know, maybe fair value for sterling dollars, a dollar fifty cents, something like that. You know, that was where kind of where its trading range was. And then uh, we looked at the at the potential vote. And we went, you know, we got to go underweight into this thing because the downside and the upside are pretty asymmetric. And then they, uh, so we were underweight when they voted it. Brexit, you know, got voted. We're like, okay. Do we go neutral now? And we looked at it and we went, nope. Um, and uh, if it was a buck fifty before, maybe a dollar twenty-five is fair value now. Buck thirty-five, we're still underweight. So, so we obviously have a view that it's worse 
for the United Kingdom than the market thinks it is. Why? Uh, part of its services, we don't see how um, the, uh, the, the Eurozone can resist the regulatory temptation to pass a bunch of legislation that requires certain kinds of financial things to be done in other places than London. And we think we think those jobs are vulnerable. Uh, we think we're already starting to see migration to uh, to the continent. Uh, some of these jobs are going to Poland. Some are going to France. Some are going to Germany. Some will go to Ireland. But uh, a lot of them will not stay in, in London. We have trouble sizing the total effect until we get more comfortable with that and to see if the United Kingdom has something else that they do really well. I mean, I mean, they're really good in services. I mean, you know, terrific bankers, pretty good architects, uh, some other cool stuff. But but is it is is I don't, I don't think there's a lot of money in architecture. So we just don't see uh, what the alternative is to their lost financial service revenue right now for us to get comfortable with um, with how things are going. And so we still terms, think there's more pain ahead. And you're looking at Ireland as well. And Ireland is um, deeply invested in having an open border like with, with the Republic and having like economically the island of Ireland is one economic unit. Um, well, the whole EU is one economic unit right now. Um, post, I mean, I guess the questions which I have is number one is Brexit going to happen in 2019? Number two, if it does, is there going to be like suddenly a border between North and South? It looks like there should be, uh, according to the law as I understand it. So, so that's going to be that's going to be that's going to be painful. The Good Friday Accords that be a bit of a problem though. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole. The that's whole why this whole thing is going <laughs> off the rails. Right, like, like that's yeah. the, the yeah, whole that's... reason why. I mean, this is this is really not been covered deeply enough in the US as far as I can see but like the reason why we have um, a power sharing agreement and basically peace in Ireland the whole impetus which allowed peace in Ireland to happen was the EU and the fact that you could more or less effectively unify Ireland economically to the point at which people didn't care so much about the difference between the two and if you start putting up these borders that's really bad for Yes, it is. Yeah. I, th I see the entire UK-Irish relationship as uh, having been essentially collateral damage from the Brexit vote, and it doesn't look like anyone did any thinking about it before the vote. <laughs> Except no for the thing. Irish. They were thinking about it. <laughs> they didn't get to vote. Well, the Northern Irish voted strongly to remain. There we go. Uh, the Welsh voted sense. to remain. The Scots voted to remain. The Londoners voted to remain. Maybe maybe it's only England that should leave, and should stay. <laughs> I, I think that's actually. I saw someone proposing that recently. That just like the middle of it, middle England could leave, and everyone else could stick around. <laughs> I think London wants to stay too. So yes, exactly. So just... This 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 you know the part of the part of, of of Great Britain that would be leaving just gets smaller and smaller as we as we have this conversation. It, it's it's a so. I guess the weird thing for me is, given how disastrous this whole thing is going, uh, given like the the latest crazy from David De David Davis, the the Brexit minister, where he talks about fifty eight detailed sexual analyses of the impact of Brexit on various different sectors of the economy, which he's been drawing up for years, but apparently now don't exist, according to him. Um, what what is the market seeing? Why is the pound still at one thirty five? I think that they may be figuring that whatever the tariff architecture is that the UK has to operate under, it's not going to be dispositive. It's just not going to be such a big price change that it will dramatically upend um, a lot of existing business relationships. That may be. Uh, I don't know. We have something analogous in North America. It's called NAFTA. And it's uh, there have been threats uh, this autumn uh, of a unilateral American withdrawal. Uh, that was very bad uh, in the short term for the for the Mexican peso that week. Uh, things have kind of recovered since then. But again, it, there's a big question mark about this. And, and I do think Sterling had been responding a bit more to like be a, a Bank of England policy um, up until very recently, almost more than anything else. So I, I think that's that's another issue to think about in terms of um, what we're seeing in the UK. But I think it's also important to see that we're seeing 
like the OECD, come out with really negative growth projections for the UK moving forward. I don't think the market's taking that very seriously because no, uh, Bank of England came out with some fairly dire projections uh, right in the aftermath of Brexit and nothing bad happened. And so, so I think- no one believes either the OECD or the Bank of England. There's this, there is this weird complacency, which you see in the UK and you see in the US post-Trump is that the dire predictions of what would happen in the wake of a leave vote or a Trump election have signally failed to come true. And so now, in in the immortal words words of Michael Gove, like, we've had enough of experts, like, you guys were wrong, you know? Well, and I think it's it can also be a little bit self-fulfilling when you I mean, it's it was interesting because I feel like before before the Trump vote, before Brexit, I mean, you in the when you spoke with people, people did have really like dire thoughts about what was going to happen. And then nothing happened. And I, and I think the markets do also kind of learn from that. And again, it, it also goes back to what exactly are the markets pricing in? And right now, globally, when you have a very kind of benign global economic environment, it's not surprising that we're not seeing enormous movements. I have I have a theory about this. I think there's a time discontinuity between reality and markets. And markets want to price everything faster, not slower. And uh, they would like to, you know, actually, you know, there, there are folks that trade um, uh, very high frequency trader that trade in nanoseconds. But reality takes time. So if you instantaneously discount a bad thing and then nothing bad happens for a while, you kind of conclude you got it wrong. You may not be wrong. You may simply be early because reality takes time. And I don't think markets have ever been good at that kind of of computation. Uh, anticipating, uh, pricing in events which are going to happen like a year or even a few months in the future. I remember reading about the stock market in 1914 where like it was it was booming and it was quite obvious that war was coming even after the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand the f- stock market still failed to crash for it's a few not, weeks until eventually it's not- it did highly clear that war was coming because I believe the British foreign minister did take his uh, his scheduled vacation to go fishing in Scotland yeah, that summer. That's true. And, and I believe the Kaiser was on his yacht in a Norwegian fjord. So, so you may say that just means that politics wasn't a lot better then than it is now uh, in terms of people being able to to anticipate, you know, the next event. But nonetheless, I, I, I do think that the war came as, as, as a bit of a surprise. Well, let's hope um, maybe maybe there will be a kind of muddling through akin to what we're seeing in um, in the U.S. right now. I guess that's the best case scenario. Like people talk about ending NAFTA, but it never ends. I was thinking about NAFTA and how to think about NAFTA. And we don't think that what's best for the world economy is uppermost in the minds of the policymakers. I do think there are two uh, countervailing pressures that will be um, um, uh, considered. One will be what sounds cool to the base, and the base seems to be anti-immigrant. I can, I think, I think that that's that's fair. Uh, so that would be an exit might be popular. On the other hand, there's the donors, and I've already mentioned the donors. The donors are important. They don't like that uh, because it would be damaging to American business. And um, also to Mexican and Canadian business, but uh, specifically, I think I think that um, uh, we suspect that the donor influence may dominate, and what we will get is something that sounds cool, but actually has a more, more much more continuity uh, uh, in terms in terms of NAFTA, NAFTA's future than the uh, the worst case scenarios. Anyway, that's our hope. Uh, the reason we hold that view is because um, a view of donor power, which was just recently validated by the passage of these tax bills. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. 
you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Okay, now, Dave Roller, you and I go back many years. We used to talk a lot about Latin America. So now I feel I'm going to go into a sort of nostalgia thing. (laughs) And we're going to talk about how Latin American politics is really fucked up. I feel like this is a conversation we've been having for since the 90s. Um, Let's start with, I don't know, Anna, what is a Petro? A Petro? So (laughs) uh, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela announced that they are going to try to evade U.S. sanctions by issuing this... uh, uh, cryptocurrency called the Petro that's going to be backed by their oil reserves, which is which is obviously insane. Every part of this plan is insane. It, and having said that, it's n- obviously not ever going to come to be, but it's a pretty fantastic story and just indicative of the insanity that's going on right now. Is Venezuela just going to have like the is the Venezuelan government kind of like one big wallet that could be hacked? <laughs> like, I don't get, like, how does this work? No, it makes like, very little they... sense. Although there actually are a lot of Bitcoin miners in Venezuela. Okay. Because uh, it's cheap energy. But there's, it is but, very cheap energy. Although their servers aren't in I was going to say, aren't they having, like, horrible energy blackouts in Venezuela? Because, like, their well, big yes, actually, hydroelectric and, dimes, uh, dams aren't. And when you're having people getting... Um, arrested for being Bitcoin miners, it's because they see energy spike spikes, and then they're they're like charged with illegal like misuse of electricity. It's it's crazy. Wait, so this is gonna be like Bolivarian Bitcoin? Yes. <laughs> okay. But yeah. So, but the the big picture here is that there's a bunch of um, imagine that all of American like fiscal and monetary policy was just run by Donald Trump in the, individually with zero kind of institutional basis or support if you just have nicolas maduro sort of waking up one morning and going repudiate restructure cryptocurrency bitcoin and throwing words out without knowing what they mean um it it becomes just chaos so what we have right now is just chaos right i was first asked to analyze uh venezuela's uh, um sovereign values the year I was hired in 1994, and um, and so I spent some time on it, and um, my manager said, "Well, what's the bull case?" I said, "Well, politics are difficult, but they've got a lot of oil," and they said, <laughs> "What's the bear case?" Well, they've got a lot of oil, but politics are really difficult. <laughs> yeah, and. This and guy- This has not changed, but what has changed is the solvency of Venezuela. And if you look at Venezuela right now, its current conditions, uh, they're in a multi-year recession, which is not just damaging living standards, but life expectancies. Um, Venezuelans are migrating and taking jobs as illegal um, uh, restaurant assistants in the Dominican Republic because that's better than living in Venezuela. Uh, That's bad. And they have a hyperinflation. When you have a hyperinflation, it means that the government has lost its ability to collect taxes. That's what a hyperinflation is. It's an inflation tax. I'll tell you something else. As a bondholder, when you see a hyperinflation, you can kind of figure you're not going to get paid because the only way to stop a hyperinflation is with a currency reform. When that happens, there will be a, a, a unilateral change in terms and conditions of domestic debt, and it's very rare to do that, that, that painful confiscatory thing to domestic debt holders and not include the foreign bondholders who don't even vote. So that's – it's happened once um, in Bulgaria, but it's very rare. Uh, most of the time, uh, you look at a situation like Venezuela and you say, well, this is a default. And we just have to wait and see. What's interesting this week is that the Chinese 
have come out and said that there are some, uh, they're starting to sue uh, uh, PDVSA uh, for non-payment. That's different and suggests that the Chinese have exhausted their patience with the Venezuelan government. That leaves Venezuela with only the Russians. Now, you may say, well, the Venezuelans can't really do a cryptocurrency, but I bet the Russians can. Uh, so, so maybe maybe they'll get a little a little Soviet help on their on their access to the uh, uh, to the internet and what have you. But it's not clear what the value proposition would be for the hypothetical buyer of 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 a Venezuelan cryptocurrency. Well, this is yeah, true I mean, of all unclear. cryptocurrencies, to be fair. This but. is very true. And one of the things I also think it's really important. Um, I very much agree with you, but to think about is the fact of. Their reserves, FX reserves, are now below ten billion, and not only they're below ten billion, but almost all of that is in gold. They have almost no liquid um, hard currency left. And right now, you just saw where they, in theory, had a default, but it wasn't really a default because they're even a, the ability to pay coupon payments at this time is becoming very, very difficult. And you had the Russians who were able to kind of reprofile one of their loans, extend it out, but that's, I mean, that's not buying them that much. The, every, Everyone in the market I know when I was when I was still at my, my former job was kind of saying, OK, 2017, we think they'll probably still be able to make some of these payments. But almost everybody's thinking 2018. It seems incredibly unlikely. And it's also important to remember that right now Venezuela is under sanction. So it's almost impossible to do any type of debt exchange. So then that raises the question of how do we even do a restructuring? And um, before this kind of Sinopec uh, announcement came out in terms of the suit, people were saying, wait, 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 slow down. Sorry. So. People were saying maybe. Wait, wait, what's the scene so sorry, sorry. That was the the um, the Chinese um, oil company that is now suing uh, Pedavisa for non-payment. So people had been saying maybe China would buy the bonds and then somehow that would facilitate an exchange, which made no sense. Okay, I just want to like I feel like we're diving into the weeds of like whether or not Venezuela You've is left defaulting. Out the most important thing, and now. To, to, to explain this importance, I have to first uh, uh, explain that I am from Boston. And um, one of our prominent um, urban architectural features is the Sitco sign um, over, over by Fenway Park. And it's, it's, it's just part of the, the Boston urban landscape. I mean, in New York, you've got the Empire State Building, a lot of other stuff. We've got the Sitco sign. And we are actually very concerned that we will wake up one day and Luke Oil will have repoed our <laughs> Sitco sign, and it just won't be there anymore. Yes. And so you that's need a problem. Sitco, you, have to, you have to know that yeah. Sitco is a subsidiary of, of, of PDVSA. And, and yeah. one of the reasons that yeah. PDVSA has not wanted to default, because people often ask, okay, I don't understand. Why is this socialist government not paying their importers and starving their population so they can pay their foreign creditors? And the main reason is, frankly, because of things like Sitco. They do not want their foreign assets to be taken, not only because they don't want their foreign assets to be seized, because they don't want that to cause interference with the shipment of oil because they get 90%, 95% of their revenue through oil. So if that happens, if all of a sudden payments can't come through, oil can't be shipped, they're really done. So well, it's not just a matter really of- They're done already. They are kind of really done already, but as long as they can, that oil can still move, they still have a little bit of movement with people like Russia, with like the deal they did with Rosneft. If all of a sudden that can't happen, then- they're really done. Okay, so I want to just wide, like, step back a little bit here, away from questions of like coupon payments on Venezuelan bonds, and just ask about again, like this big, broad political thing. Um, you know, politics is trumping economics in Bre in Britain. Um, politics seems to be trumping economics in the UK. Politics is trumping economics in Venezuela. I mean, it seems to be happening all over the world. It's this, it, it seems to be happening in Brazil too, right? And Brazil is much more important than than Venezuela. Well, what's, yeah, quick, quick detour into Brazil because I think that's the big one. There's political chaos in Brazil, right? I, I mean, I, I would argue that actually we've been seeing in a number of other Latin American countries with Macri in Argentina. And okay, Brazil has a lot of problems, but you are seeing a bit of a pullback from the populism that had been kind of, on the rise for so long. And, and I think there is potentially an argument that although we are seeing this insane corruption scandal in, in Venezuela, I'm sorry, in Brazil, and this kind of culling of politicians, it's also a sign that people aren't willing to take this. And I think that moving forward, you could potentially actually have less corruption and a both less populism and a more market-friendly economy. So I would actually argue that in Latin America, you're seeing a bit of a pushback to this. 
I would say that uh, we agree with some of that. Uh, we think that there was a rejection of what you might call left-wing populism. Certainly, there's been a rejection of corruption as usual, no doubt. And these are both, I think, um, uh, very constructive for uh, for Brazil in the, in, in the long run. But it's not clear that we may not swing to the other end of the spectrum uh, as we look at the next presidential election. If we replace a left-wing populist with a right-wing populist who's sort of a Duterte type and that talks about out, yeah. shooting a lot of criminals, uh, that may not be um, uh, a real market-friendly outcome. So, so I think the market is not prepared to price that election yet. At the moment, they're comfortable with Brazil. It has a lot of yield. They've done, because they had a multi-year recession and, and took a lot of the pain on the, on the exchange rate, um, uh, their current accounts in, 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 in pretty good shape. So they don't really need money. Uh, sort of the opposite of Venezuela. Venezuela needs money and can't get it. Brazil doesn't really need money so they can get it. Uh, but I think the presidential election will be will be a test uh, coming forward. But we're probably six months away from uh, having any kind of clarity about what that will look like. Yeah, I agree. And, and I don't know if we're going to there has been a lot of talk about the some of the current leading contenders, but it's still a long time to go. And, and I think I find it unlikely that we would shift that far to the right, but it's a possibility. Meanwhile, Mexico could shift quite pretty far to the left uh, if we have Manuel Amlo, yeah. Lopez Obrador as, as the next president of Mexico. And so, again, uh, the more strident the American criticism of Mexico, the more likely Mexico would go with a, with a local nationalist. And, and, and so that would, again, be a source of considerable pain for the markets. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On which happy note, let's have a numbers round. Um... Dave, since you're the guest, we'll let you give us a number, any number. 0 0.5. Oh, I like that one. What's that? That might be the inflation neutral real interest rate at the Federal Reserve, which we used to call, or, or which we are now calling R star. R star. Okay. R -star. Right. This is are my favorite wonky number. Of are, all are you time. folks? Are you folks familiar with R star? Wait, quick, quick show of hands. Um, Jordan, do you know what R star is? Neutral neutral rate of interest. Yep. I mean, it's basically the Goldilocks interest rate, where the economy is supposed to be able to keep plowing ahead at full steam without terrible inflation. There you go. Yeah. So, and and this is is this a traded rate, or is this some, is this a bit like Nairu? It's one of these things which you kind of think probably. Oh, it's much, it's much more like Nairo. It, like all the other really important things in finance, is unobservable and a metaphysical construct. All the stuff we talk about, Nairo, R-Star, the term premium, you can't observe any of these things in the marketplace. All we can see are like interest rates that people trade at. But the idea here goes back to John Taylor and the Taylor Rule, and it goes back all the way actually to Kurt Vicksell, who uh, originally said, you know, there's got to be an interest rate at which, if it's too low, uh, we generate inflation, and if it's too high, uh, we have a recession. So there's got to be a Goldilocks interest rate, your phrase, mm -hmm. the Goldilocks interest rate, well, that's just right. And, and if you believe in, in continuity, uh, that's, that's got to be true. Of course, we don't know what and it does, is. Does Asta, how much does Asta move in a normal economy? Well, it turns, out, it turns out that it was stable for a long time, but probably isn't now. Um, like anything else, it's important. It so starts to move around. So was it stable before the crisis? Back when John Taylor uh, came up with his rule, you know, like for optimal policy, uh, it looked like our star had been well behaved at around 2%. Remember, this is an inflation adjusted real interest rate. So to get to something nominal that you might see, you add an inflation trend on top of it. 
Back then, if you thought that inflation was well-behaved at 2, 2.5, you add the 2% to that, 4, 4.5% looked like um, a neutral interest rate for Fed funds. And if you had a recession, you'd take the interest rate down. You had inflation, you'd take the interest rate up. That's what the Taylor rule does. It doesn't do anything more complicated than that. It's a feedback rule uh, depending on what's causing you the most pain, recession or inflation. That's all it does. It fights the trend you don't like. So when did our star fall from 2% to 0.5%? The global financial crisis seems to have damaged it. And as we look at the time path that the um, uh, the great and good in, in economic research, and we're talking now about an important paper from San Francisco fed by Laubach and Williams, uh, you can show a trend drift in R star down towards something like zero or 0.5 today. If you plug that into a Taylor rule, and this is cool, then recent fed policy looks pretty much optimal. Yep. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. No, they were not too easy. They were right on track. So if that's that's kind of that's kind of an important conversation to have. R star is a big deal. And by the way, all the cool kids now know what their R star is. So if you went to the World Bank meetings, the IMF meetings, Brazil was there telling you their R star is three. The Mexicans were telling you it was two point five. A couple of other central banks had nothing to say because they're not cool. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Our star is is a big deal the, now. The one thing among we will say about the Mexican central bank is that they've always been the cool kids. But the, oh, which also I need to ask you since we have you here, like, does Mexico have a central bank governor? Well, they always have an active acting governor. I mean, are you talking about who the next fellow is going to be? Yeah, I uh, I'm not close to it. I can't help you. Uh, okay, we we will pass on that one. Anna, do you have a number? I do. Three hundred million. So that's 300 million rand. And that's how much money was misappropriated from the South African uh, budget to pay for Nelson Mandela's funeral. And it appears that it Wait, was... what's that in dollars? It's about 22 million, I think. That's an expensive funeral. <laughs> yes. And a lot of it was paid for things like 350 rand t-shirts. Not sure why you need to have buy all these t-shirts for a funeral. So yeah, it's clear that a lot of the money was just horribly misused. And there's this like hashtag Mediba funeral that's trending <laughs> on Twitter. It's becoming a bit, uh, quite a big deal uh, again. But it, again, in the grand scheme of things, similar to what we were talking about with Brazil, the fact that people are getting so upset and all this information about ANC corruption is coming out, I think is actually ultimately long term a good thing for South Africa. My number is... 814 million, since this is the Petro edition and we're talking about asset-backed cryptocurrencies. Um, the idea behind the Petro is it would be backed by oil and no one knows how that works. But there is such a thing as an asset-backed cryptocurrency. It's called a tether. And one tether is always worth $1. It's a cryptocurrency which is designed with one purpose in mind, which is that it has an a, 100% fixed exchange rate of one tether to one dollar. If you buy a tether for a dollar, the tether people go out and use that dollar to buy a dollar and they put the dollar in their bank account. And it's completely, it's it's like a currency board. And there are reasons why you might want a cryptocurrency, which was just always worth one dollar, um, especially if you're not in America. It's easier to just switch from one cryptocurrency into another than it is to go back and forth into dollars. There are 814 million tethers out there in the world, which means that they are backed by $814 million, at least in theory. The problem is that no one has seen these $814 million. <laughs> there is no reason to believe they actually exist. There's a lot of vague hand-waving talk about, well, I think they're in a Polish bank account. Oh, no. No, no, no. We need to see a custodian. That's what we need. Now, one of the things, one of the things you want to do when you, the, what you're talking about in a way is, is, is a, a sort of specialized piece of asset management. And there's always two things you want to see in an asset manager. You want to see third party pricing of all assets and you want to see third party custody of all assets. It's fine to pay the asset manager to make decisions to buy and sell things, but you don't really want the asset manager to decide the value of his or her own stuff. That's always a bad idea. It's very tempting. Uh, it never has ended very well. So third-party custody, third-party pricing. Pricing seems simple here. It's one-to-one. -one. So we've just down to the third-party custody. We look forward to hearing from the Polish banks. Yeah, the Polish banks are talking a lot about client confidentiality, which doesn't really... Is that? They're like, we're, we're, taking, them, we're taking on the Swiss model here. Um, 
My turn? Yeah. Uh, my number is 10,731. Um, and I'll get to exactly what that represents in a second. But so at the moment, uh, uh, SpaceX is getting ready for its first launch of its, I believe it's the Falcon Heavy rocket. And so Elon Musk went on Twitter, and as Elon Musk is one to do, he announced that the payload was going to be his midnight cherry Tesla Roadster, and that the car that was going to be on this rocket was going to play Space Oddity, and that they were going to launch it to Mars orbit. So I repeat, Elon Musk's plan right now for this rocket launch is to put a electric car in it, put on David Bowie and launch it to Mars. And at first it was unclear if this was a joke. And then he kind of tried to walk it back. And then someone came out and told the Virgil, no, no, he is absolutely serious about launching a roadster to Mars with David Bowie playing. So I went and calculated how many times you could play Space Odyssey on the trip to Mars. And if you go as fast as possible, apparently the quickest trip directly there is about 924 hours. You could play that song over and over again, 10,731 times, oh, 10,731 Point six five times approximately. Um, the only thing that is there, the you know, the rocket's going to be orbiting Mars pretty much in perpetuity. So obviously, David Bowie will be going for a while. Anyway, that is my number. Well, that's kind of cool. My senior year in college, I worked part time as a computer programmer for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and my salary was paid by the end of the Mariner money and the beginning of the Viking money. So I actually have been not a hypothetical rocket scientist, but an actual rocket scientist. And my first, my first important job after the bookstore was actually working on Mars missions. I wish him well. So now you can you can answer you can answer the big question: What's better, being a rocket scientist or being a bond investor? Oh, uh, you make more money uh, being a bond investor, unless things uh, go upside down with those uh, vigilantes we talked about. <laughs> okay, I think that's it, Dave Raleigh. Thank you very much for coming into Slate Money this week. It's been awesome having you. Uh, thanks to Dan Schrader as well, and. Thanks to all of you people who phoned in with your questions. We're going to have an amazing um, phone-in episode in a couple of weeks. And do listen to Slow Burn, which is the new podcast about Watergate, which comes out on Tuesdays. It's an eight-episode miniseries. It's really good. There are many reasons quite obvious reasons why it's worth revisiting what happened in Watergate right now. So that's exactly what we're doing here at Slate Slow Burn. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom.